You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Good morning again, church family. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. As you're uh, turning there, we would be uh, uh, remiss not to mention that it is, uh, of course, Father's Day. So if you haven't gotten your Father's Day card yet to your dad, you should get on that quickly. Um, but we sincerely want to uh, wish all of our, our dads a happy Father's Day today. And uh, no place better than to be with your family than right here in the church. Amen? Amen. And uh, so we're grateful for this blessing. Well, last week, we've, we've been studying through Nehemiah, and last week in chapter 4, we talked about uh, persevering through opposition, and I mentioned to you that's the theme, I think, for chapters 5 and also 6, and uh, so we're going to try to look at both of those today, and, uh, and I think uh, each of these chapters have another particular emphasis that Nehemiah draws from. Uh, in facing the opposition. So let's read a portion of these texts uh, this morning, beginning Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for Other men have our fields and our vineyards. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Look down at verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out, uh, shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakifram in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. 
And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king, he will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done Now, O God, strengthen my hands. And then look at verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you again for being such a great God. And Lord, we we humble ourselves now before you and before your word. We have voiced to you in song and prayer and your word today, and, and now, Lord, we need to hear from you. So give us ears to hear, and I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most admirable qualities about Nehemiah uh, as a person, as a leader, was his determination. And when you read the story, he had a lot of reasons to become discouraged. In fact, chapter after chapter, there is uh, some kind of obstacle or challenge that he is facing, and yet he seemingly perseveres uh, through all of this, he, he didn't become discouraged and, and, and give up. Of course, we know as Christians that our determination has a divine element to it. Determination is not a fruit of the Spirit, but yet it flows out of the calling and the convictions that we hold and also the mighty God who lives in us. And so it's a powerful testimony when after facing so many challenges, we read statements like these in chapter 4, verse 6, so we built the wall. Or uh, in our text, chapter 6, verse 3, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Or chapter 6, verse 11, should a man, such a man as I, run away? Nehemiah just uh, persevered with determination to fulfill the mission that God had had called him. He simply would not allow himself to be distracted or sidetracked to what God had asked him to do. Determination is very important. One of my favorite stories is uh, about John Heisman, who was a coach at Georgia Tech in the early 1900s, football coach. In 1917, his Georgia Tech team scored a 220-0 win over Cumberland, Tennessee. 
in the biggest rout in college football history. And there were, there were no first downs the entire game because Cumberland didn't, didn't earn any and Georgia Tech didn't need any. They scored every time they touched the football. At halftime, it was 126 to 0. And Coach Heisman, his team winning, pulls his team together at halftime and he says, uh, he says men, uh, we're in front. He says, but you never know what those Cumberland players have up their sleeves, so don't let up. <laughs> and I think about that, how that, that is important. We can't let up uh, because we have a great adversary. And we need to, to keep persevering. But this story is more than just about human action or the example of Nehemiah. And we've tried to stress throughout our study together that this book of Nehemiah tells us about God's faithfulness to His people and the call for their faithful response to God. Uh, so in other words, there's something behind Nehemiah's determination and the people's response. There's more to learn here than just uh, leadership lessons. There, there's more to learn here than just morality that you're supposed to go out and, and do and, and mimic like Nehemiah. This story is meant to reveal God to us so that we would respond in faithfulness to Him, that our hearts would be changed and transformed for God. The theme that is highlighted here, I think, in chapters 5 and 6 is not just uh, perseverance in oppositions, but it, it is the reason why we should persevere. And, and Nehemiah, uh, in these two chapters, stresses for us the importance of the fear of God, uh, particularly as how it stands up against the fear of man. This is incredibly important for our faithfulness today, church. Much of the spiritual opposition that we face will pit these two things against each other, the fear of man, the, the desire for the approval of man, the fear of man versus the fear of God. And so these chapters are about human beings responding to God with the right kind of fear, a fear that humbles, that acknowledges and obeys God because He is God. And this is perhaps Nehemiah's greatest example to us all, for us all. I mean, his actions, how he's leading and living here, how he conducts himself stems not from some kind of a moralism. It stems from his relationship with the Almighty God. And church, it's critical that we get this message and live this message for the sake of God and for the sake of one another. Because here's the thing, Satan will not give up. We don't know what he has up his sleeves. Chapter 5, there's another problem, isn't it? It's an economic problem in, in some ways that threatens the unity of God's people and therefore the work on the wall. Uh, the people begin to complain to Nehemiah that their uh, more wealthy leaders were exploiting them. Notice verse 3, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. These are tough times. Verse 4, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5, we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves in order to pay our debts. And this is what they were doing to one another. It was their own countrymen who were taking advantage of them. We understand Nehemiah's anger in verse 6. I was angry when I 
heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. This is the only time in Nehemiah that I can tell, at least, where the work stops. And that is when Nehemiah calls this assembly. And I think it's a great reminder to to us today that the greatest threat to God's work is usually not opposition from the outside, but division on the inside. And you think about this, disunity among God's people has done what all of these enemies of God coming together could not do in chapter 4. They stopped the work. Nehemiah confronts them in verse 9. He says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So here's the first point I want to make this morning. The fear of God shapes our behaviors toward one another. The fear of God shapes our behaviors toward one another. You, you have to relish here the clarity of Nehemiah's words. He's very clear, isn't he? Beginning in verse 9, the thing that you're doing is not good. Why was it not good? It was not because they were lending to one another, but it was rather because they are being cruel and unloving to one another and exploiting one another for gain. And in the process, you understand as they're doing this, they are discrediting their God. They're the very thing that ought to characterize them, the, the, the gracious, steadfast love and faithfulness of God. They, they, they are acting without love for God. They are acting without love for the, their others, uh, one another. They, they were acting in direct disobedience to God's Word. And it had resulted in disunity among them. It's just a word about this. It's difficult to, I think, convey the seriousness of disunity among the people of God. Uh, because God takes it so serious. First and foremost, you understand, it, it distorts God's character. It misrepresents Him before the world. And you even see the hinting of that there when it says He brings the taunts of the nations of our enemies, verse 9, Nehemiah says. It gives credit for God's enemies, those opposed to God, to discredit God and His work. And on top of that, of course, being unselfish and unloving to, to the people around us. This unity is hurtful. And it leads to more hurtful attitudes and actions toward one another. Notice Nehemiah's call to repentance, though. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? In other words, shouldn't you, as the people of God, walk in the fear of the Lord? Shouldn't your fear of God make a difference in how you live your life? It should. When we talk about the fear of God... We must think about it in terms of a spectrum of of attitudes. And I would begin with this. If you are a person who is an unbeliever today, you do not believe in in Christ, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then the fear of God, when we talk about the fear of God, it should evoke 
terror and dread in your life. The Scripture is so plain about this. Who can escape the judgment of God if they neglect such a great salvation? Or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No one is excluded from this fear, even, even Christians. But those who know God through repentance and faith in Jesus have moved along the spectrum of fear. That fear is fading, and it's fading into a reverent submission to God that leads to joyful obedience to Him. The fear of the Lord means uh, to worship God. It, it means to rely on, to trust God, to hope in God, to submit your life to obedience. That is, this knowledge of God, it is drawing us to, to run to God, not to flee from God. It causes us to gladly submit to His Lordship. So Nehemiah's question is, shouldn't you who know God in a covenant relationship, shouldn't you be submitting yourself to the fear of God in obedience? This has all kinds of application for us as individual Christians and, and the church as a whole. Uh, for one, it's reminding us that our doctrine must not be divorced from our lives. That is, as believers in Christ, our belief and our behavior are both inseparable components of authentic faith. It's not that we come in here and we express all these beliefs through our singing and praying and so forth, and then we can go out and live any way that we want to live. As God's children, we're expected to be like Him, being holy as He is holy, joyfully submitting to His Word, not our feelings, not our opinions, not, not, not the latest trends or culture, uh, changing winds of culture of the day, but, but God and His Word. The Israelite people knew this, but they were neglecting to do it. I think, I think in our day, it's not the fear of the Lord that leads many Christians today, but rather their own feelings that govern them. And I want to caution you against the danger of this. Ed Welch has written a great book. I'd commend it to you. It's called, When People Are Big and God is Small. And he tells a story in that book about Mary who comes to her pastor, I think she's more of a fictional character, but Mary comes to her pastor and she says something like this to her pastor. She says, God told me to marry John. And she's really excited and she's really wanting the pastor to be ecstatic about this as well. And the pastor says, well, please tell me a little bit more about John. And Mary says to him, well, he, he isn't a Christian yet. Um, in fact, he refuses to come to church, but, but I know that he will someday. And the pastor says, well, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about why, how, how you know that you should marry him? How did God tell you this? And then Mary says, well, pastor, I just feel it. I know it's right. And you see, at that point in the conversation, Walt is exactly right. The conversation is over because Mary has just appealed to the highest authority in her life. And it is not God in his word. It is her feelings. And it's a sad thing because most likely in a few years after this conversation, she's going to appeal to that same authority again, her feelings, to say, I'm just not happy with John and I'm going to get a divorce. 
Welch then adds this, and I think it's exactly right. When feelings become more important than faith, people will become more important and God will become less important. That's so true, and it's true not just in that marriage illustration I just told, but it's, it's true against many of our sins and many of our sins against one another that when feelings become more important than faith, people will become bigger. God will become less important, whether it's bitterness and anger, how you feel about those things, jealousy and greed, lust and selfishness. When feelings become more important than obedience to God's Word, people will become more important and God will become less. How powerful and relevant Nehemiah's question is, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Shouldn't the Word of God trump our feelings? Shouldn't we fear Him? Shouldn't we fear this God, the Creator and the Judge of all of the universe? Shouldn't it affect how we live our lives? How true this applies to our fellowship together as a church body. How true it is that we must not be led by feelings. We must not be led by opinions. Only a church that is united in love, and that love is defined by God's Word. Only a church like that can truly display God's glory and power to the world. We have to resist Satan's efforts to divide us, and we must submit ourselves to God rather than our feelings. Surely this was Paul's instructions in Ephesians 4.25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil." Nehemiah was right, I think, to stop the work, call the people to assemble, and call them to fear God and to live as such. Verses 12 and 13 record the response of the people. It says, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And then the latter part of verse 13 says, and all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah live with this fearful reverence before God. Before he contemplated even things that were profitable for himself, he's always considering, what does this mean? How should I respond in the fear of God and, and, and His Word? Briefly notice verse 15. The former governors, he said, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. What does it say? Why did he not do so? Because of the fear of God. The fear of God is not some kind of uh, posturing in public worship that we do for one hour on Sunday. It has practical consequences for everyday life. Because of the fear of God, Nehemiah sought to honor God's name. He sought to obey God's Word. He sought to love God's people. It was the controlling principle of his life. And we need to ask, is it ours? The uh, centrality of the fear of God emerges even more fully, I think, in chapter 6 when these enemies of God try to frighten Nehemiah. 
Notice, secondly, then, the fear of God strengthens our witness in the world. It strengthens our witness in the world. We'll note the text together. Verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakar Ephraim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. We were introduced to Sanballat last week, remember, who's trying to stop the work by threatening Nehemiah. Now he's back at it again. He says, why don't you, you know, pause from what you're doing and come and let's meet together so we can talk about your project. Nehemiah figured out that they intended to do harm to him. Verse 3 says, I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a, a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And notice the opposition and the pressure continues. They begin to make false accusations, verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. The reason that you would send an open letter is because you hope a lot of people will be reading the letter along the way. They're trying to spread rumors. What kind of rumors? Verse 6, it's reported among the nations, and, and even Geshem says it, that you and the Jews are intending to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. In other words, you're building this wall so you can rebel against Persia. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, Nehemiah. You've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there's a king in Judah. And boy, the king's going to hear about this. Let's take counsel together. Nehemiah replies in verse 8, No such things as you have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Now notice this, verse 9, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, he says, Oh God, strengthen my hands. Notice their aim is to frighten Nehemiah in order to stop the work, the fear of man. Verse 10, They threaten physical harm. And I went to the house of Shimeon, the son of Deleah, and son of, wow, that's a long name, who was confined to his home. And he said, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But Nehemiah says in verse 11, shouldn't such a man as I, should such a man as I run away? And he turns to prayer again. And then verse 14, remember, he says, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. He's praying specifically about these two characters. According to the things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets. Notice it again. Who wanted to make me afraid. All of us should understand this struggle at some level, I think, this morning about the fear of man. Maybe it's not with physical threats. But certainly the fear of man, the desire to have the approval of man. And it comes at us in lots of ways. We want to be at peace with people. We want to be liked by people. We want to be well thought of in the world. We want to be accepted by our peers. Uh, We want to please those around us. And the fear of not having the approval of man. You see how those things can begin to control your life? 
In Nehemiah's case, they're using fear to get him to stop the work, to stop doing what God had called him to do, rather than responding faithfully to a faithful God. The temptation is to let the fear of man dictate his life. There's a danger there. This past week, uh, several of the staff, we went to the Southern Baptist Convention. Our church is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and the meeting was held in Nashville this year, and I want you to be encouraged. There were some positive things that came about that meeting. I was thrilled. I think we were all encouraged that our convention continues to celebrate and reaffirm our commitment to missions, to reaching this world for Jesus. Amen? It's a wonderful thing. It was emphasized over and over again. Um, there was, a, I think, a clear message that were sent to some of our entities in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's been some issues of late, and uh, there was a call for more transparency and accountability. And uh, I think that was a very good thing. I think that would please you all as a church body to know that uh, that effort is being made. I think there, uh, though it could have been a little bit more clear, the churches uh, seem to stand against uh, some of the dangers of critical race theory and intersectionality and some of those bigger uh, things going on in our, our country, while at the same time affirming our love and desire for everyone of every tongue and tribe and nation to come to Christ as their Lord and Savior. One of the concerns that I, I had, though, during the week, and it seemed to keep coming up in, in conversations, and particularly among the leadership of the convention, uh, and also in debates that we were having about different matters, was the statement that kept being made that the world was watching us. And it was made several times, and, and by the way, which is very true, right? Amen? The world's watching. And there were reporters there at the convention from uh, the New York Times and other media outlets, and let me tell you, they were looking for some kind of story that would uh, smear Christ and the church uh, and the SBC. And so I think it's true that we need to be aware of that, conduct ourselves with love and respect. But it seemed to me at several points that that phrase, the world is watching us, was, was uh, that the people, as we were making decisions, they were saying that, that, it's, that the world is watching us, but what was concerning was the fact that they didn't seem to get the fact that God was watching us. And you understand there's a tension there. There's a danger there. And here's how this, this danger works. I think Owen Strawn is right when he points out that these watchers, the world watching and God watching, cannot coexist in the same heart. In other words, the fear of God, the desire for His approval, and the fear of man, the desire for man's approval, they cannot coexist in the same heart. If you are worried about the watching world, your, your fear of man will drive out the fear of God. That's true of the SBC, that's true of the local church, and it's true of your heart, Christian. If you're constantly worried about what others are thinking, you'll drive out the fear of God. Here's what we know. We will not be judged by the standards of men. We will be judged by the maker of heaven and earth. He is watching. His divine verdict matters more. And this is where Nehemiah shines to me. 
To, to what do we attribute his great courage and determination? Where does it come from? Nehemiah fears God so that he fears no one else. Is that true in your life? It was John Witherspoon, who was a co-signatory of the Declaration of Independence, who said, only the fear of God can deliver us from the fear of man. When you truly fear God, by knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior, you begin to lose the fear of man. And Nehemiah shows us this. He shows us how to respond faithfully in the fear of the Lord. We see it over and over again. His interspersed prayers all throughout, right? He's just stopping to pray here and there, reminding us of his constant awareness of his communion with God. He's praying all the time about every decision, every obstacle he's praying. His anger, even when he gets angry, it's not his own anger for himself. It is a concern for the witness of God's name and fame in the world. The way he conducts himself as a leader, it stems not, again, from some kind of a moralism or populism. It is rather out of a fear of God. Nehemiah is steeped in the Word of God, in the presence of God. Here's a man who has entrusted himself. He's not perfect by any means, but with great faithfulness to a God that he knows is faithful to his people. Therefore, he fears God so that he fears Nothing else. What an example. What a call. Notice the result, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Three quick reminders here. The work was accomplished in the face of opposition. Church, I would love to be able to do really good gospel work without any kind of opposition, but you understand that that's impossible. There's always going to be opposition whenever you're trying to walk with God faithfully. Always. Secondly, one of the outcomes of this work was a great reversal of affairs, wasn't it? They're, they're trying to make Israel afraid, but notice in the end, it was them who were afraid. When all the enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid. When God does a mighty work, unbelief trembles. Our, the fear of God gives testimony to the watching world. And here's why here and how. Nehemiah's enemies perceive that they had accomplished this task. Notice it. For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It was a work of God that this happened. Church, is this not what we pray for? A work of God in our church and in our lives? Amen? Don't you want this? It doesn't begin with the fear of man. It doesn't begin with thinking about what other people are going to think. It begins when we humble ourselves before the maker of heaven and earth. And we set our minds and our hearts determined to gain His favor, to please Him with all that we do. Now, if you do not know 
Christ today. This is really important as we close. You can never gain God's approval and favor with your good works and your moralism. You have a huge sin debt before God, just like all of us do. And it can only be paid by Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you life. You must turn to Him. You must move away from this fear and dread and terror of God, which you should have right now, towards trusting and worshiping. And living for Him. And it only happens when you turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. Will you do that today? Christian, are you living in such a way? Are you turning from your sin? Turning from your feelings, from your emotions that drive in your life to God's Word? Let's commit ourselves to these things. Father, thank You for your word today and the clarity of how it reminds us of the most important thing, which is our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to turn from our sins and to turn from the sense that we're our own moral compass for living and to turn to you, to fear you, to flee our sin and to run to Jesus, seeking to please him above everything else. Do this work in our hearts and lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.